some of the imagery and words of the cross tell us exactly why Jesus died for us. We think of Jesus' words in Gethsemane, for example, in his prayer. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Matthew 26, verse 39. Referring to the cup of wrath. Not the cup of salvation, not the cup overflowing with, with grace. But the cup of wrath. If it is possible, take this cup from me. The cross itself is symbolic. Reminds us of those words in Deuteronomy 21, which is then quoted in Galatians 3. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That the wooden tree itself is symbolic, telling us why Jesus died. The darkness of the land, as we've read in verse 45 there of Matthew 27, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, a symbol of judgment, this darkness over the land. And then, of course, Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 46, we are clearly told throughout the scriptures, and we see them, uh, see it clearly in the imagery, in the words, in the prayers, at the time of Jesus' death, that Jesus died in order to bear our sins, to receive upon himself the wrath of God the Father, that he himself died in our place, that the wrath, the, the penalty for our sins, they were all laid upon him and transferred onto him. And this is the heart of the gospel. So Isaiah 53, he took our infirmities, carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God. He was pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Uh, and so the emphasis there, which is not politically acceptable today, the people won't accept this. Uh, this is something which will be a stumbling block to many, uh, that God afflicted his own son, and that he was pierced for my transgressions for your transgressions. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we become the righteousness of God. Romans 3. We are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so we see very clearly throughout God's word. From the beginning till the very end, that Jesus is the Lamb slain for us. He takes our sin upon himself. He takes the wrath of God upon himself. He is slain so that we can be forgiven. He is forsaken so we can be accepted. He sees darkness so we can see light. It's wonderful good news that the Father should lovingly send his Son for us. And that the Son should lovingly go. In obedience to him and, and love for us. That he should go and die for us on the cross. Reconcile to God. That we can call him our father in heaven. Because of all that Christ did. By his death as well. He defeated our enemies. And this is what I want to focus tonight. The reality that Jesus' death. Crushed and defeated. Our greatest enemies. So there are three verses, and strange enough, they're all 
verses 14 and 15. Uh, so we have Genesis 3 to begin with. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head. What's been described there as the serpent crusher. That he will bruise, he will crush, he will destroy the devil, the serpent. And then in Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over them in him. And then Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. So it's easy to remember. Genesis 3, 15. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. And Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. And so we see in those three passages there the defeat, the conquest of the devil and the forces of evil, the darkness, our greatest enemy, the devil, the evil one, crushed at the cross of Christ, what is the relationship between the cross of Jesus, the cross of Calvary, and the devil and his forces? How exactly are they defeated? Have you considered that? What is the relationship? How is he defeated? How is he disarmed by the death of Christ? What is it that disarms him and destroys his powers? Well, let's go back to the very beginning. Uh, where we see the need for a saviour. So in, in Genesis 3, uh, right at the end of Genesis 3, we see that we end up with a world that is fallen, a world that is now held in captivity, captivity to sin. We see that Adam and Eve are not able to approach the garden anymore. They cannot approach God. We have the cherubim and the flaming swords. They're under judgment. In chapter 2, verse 17, God had said, if you eat, if you partake of that tree, then you will surely die. And this is what we see. We read in verse 19 of chapter 3, dust you are, and to dust you will return. So there is now death, and we see that with the death of Abel, murdered by Cain. And in chapter 5, we see death after death after death. Adam and Eve, well, they denied God's word. They listened to the devil. Did God really say? And they questioned the goodness of God. That God is narrow-minded. That God wants to limit their freedom. That God somehow uh, wants all of the glory and wants everyone else to suffer. And that's the lie that they listened to. And because of their flesh as well, 
they are drawn to this fruit, and they're drawn to the tree of good and knowledge of evil and good, and they eat of this tree. And so what happens then is that the devil, well, he has the upper hand now. He is the one who speaks, and everyone listens to him. He becomes the god of this age. And we see that humanity comes next in the hierarchy, and God is placed at the bottom. No regard for God at all. His goodness, his word challenged and defied and denied. And so this is where we are in Genesis 3. Death has entered the world. Sin has entered the world. A curse has entered this world. Banished from the presence of God. Condemned. And we now follow in those footsteps. We inherit this sin, its original sin. We would have done exactly what Adam and Eve did. We would have been no different. If we'd have been in Eden, we would have done exactly the same thing. We would have listened to the devil. We would have been drawn to the fruit. We would have done exactly the same thing. And we now inherit that sin as well. We are born sinners. And we are born with this enmity to God. There is this sin within us that we don't want to please God we don't want to love God we don't want to love our friends we are under the condemnation of God we are in Adam and this is what we see around us and we see the effects of this all around us we see that again and again just like Adam and Eve humanity chooses to go with its eyes and to go with its emotions and its feelings and to ignore the word of God. And the emotions trump what God has told us to do. And again and again, it leads to destruction. It leads to death. It leads to suffering. It leads to je- jealousy and breakdown of relationships and families and to quarrels and, and to war. And so all of this there begins in Genesis 3. And so we see right in Genesis 3 our biggest problems. That we are under the condemnation of God. We are spiritually dead. And that we will face spiritual death for all eternity. The wrath of God is upon us. We see the effects of sin. Which causes all the problems that we see around us. That sin enters the world. And this is where the devil gets his power from. So in those words in Hebrews 2, it says that the devil has the hold over us, the power of death, that he can condemn us. The devil is like a parasite. He has no power himself. But what he does is he accuses us and he can demand that we die. He knows God's law. He knows that we've broken the commands of God and he keeps us down and he demands our death. He demands our destruction. Now, I'm a, a younger brother. So, we've got two brothers here, three brothers. You've got a little brother over here. Well, I was a little brother. Now, when you're small, you haven't got the strength and the capacity to win fights. So, you have to be more cunning And so what I used to do was to tell on my brother, if he were to do something, then I were to say, hey, ma'am, look at what my brother has done. 
so I would be a snitch and I would grass and I would find little ways of disrupting my brother, making sure that all of his plans and all of his tricks would come to nothing. Really, that is the power of the devil. He condemns us. He has no power of himself, but he knows that we are sinners. He knows that we've fallen short. He knows that we deserve death and judgment and condemnation, and so he accuses, and he keeps us down. Yes, yes, you are are under my control. And then we follow then the leading and the guidance of the evil one. We follow his instincts, we follow his desires, and so on. And so this is the hold that he has over us. While we are still in Adam, while we are still facing condemnation, while we are still facing the wrath of God, he has this hold of the power of death over us. And we see this around us. People who live lives of despair, of hopelessness, of darkness. And I'm sure you have friends like that. What's the purpose of life? Keeping us down. Well, there is a promise of a saviour, isn't there? Right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We are told that one will come who will crush, who will bruise your head. That the one who will come will be bruised himself. That his heel will be bruised. But that in that act of being bruised himself, he will then crush the serpent's head. He will destroy the works of the devil. You come into Genesis chapter 4 and there are questions there as we see well, who will win. Will we see God bring a saviour? And it seems that things are going wrong immediately. Cain, of course, murders Abel. But notice that they have a son. Adam and Eve have a son. And they called him Seth, which means the promised one. (laughs) It seems to us that from this point on, Adam and Eve are now trusting in a saviour. That they have remembered by the grace of God the promise given in chapter 3 and verse 15. They are looking for a saviour. Will Seth be this promised one? Will he be the one who will bring an end to the power of evil? Will he bring an end to to death? And so they named their son Seth. Well, Seth died. It wasn't Seth. When will the Savior come? We come to Genesis 12, and we're told that the Savior will come in the line of Abraham, born into this family. And we read decades and centuries of the history of the family of Abraham and judges come and we see that they fail. We see that kings come and go and throughout the whole of the history of the people of God, we see that God keeps them and God protects them and he is gracious towards them but they fail again and again and again. Leaders emerge but they fall short. Kings appear But even the best ones fall short. And so we come to the end of the Old Testament. Where is this saviour? 
Where is the promised one who will come to crush the serpent's head, who will bring an end to evil and suffering? And there is a promise right at the end of the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. And so the promise that in Bethlehem the Savior will come, he will stand and he will be the shepherd and he will be the one, the fulfillment of all the promises which have increased and built throughout the Old Testament. And then you come and the Savior promised in Genesis 3 verse 15 is born. Now I've never preached on Genesis 3 at Christmas time. I don't know whether you've ever preached on Genesis 3 but I'm sure it would be a very appropriate passage because actually the promise there is of a saviour who would be born, of one, an offspring of the woman. And what do we have in Jesus? Where does the genealogy of Luke's gospel take us? It takes us all the way back to Adam and Eve, that Jesus is in that line that Jesus has come from Adam and Eve. He's come from the line of Abraham and David. And he is born. A child is born. Jesus, Savior. And he will take away the sins of the world. And so the Savior has finally come. And he will bruise the serpent's head. So Genesis 3 verse 15. He will bruise the serpent's head. Colossians 2 verse 15, he will disarm the powers and authorities. Hebrews 2 verse 15, he will destroy him who holds the power of death. So how exactly will he do this? So he's been promised all the way back in Genesis 3, there are pictures and prophecies and types throughout the Old Testament. How will he bring an end to the power of the devil? How will he bring an end to our enemies? How will he do it? Well, his life, first of all. For centuries, everyone had succumbed to the devil. Every single person had fallen short. They'd all fallen. Every king, every judge, every believer, every pagan, every person who'd ever lived and succumbed to the devil. Then you come to Jesus and Jesus lives a life where at the age of 30, the father can proclaim, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Everyone else had fallen short, but every word and every deed and every thought of the Lord Jesus, this man, God man, was perfect and righteous. He defeated the devil in his life. The devil threw everything at him. We think of the temptation especially. He conquered the devil there in the temptation in the wilderness. But throughout those years, 
everything he did was perfect. And we cannot even begin to imagine what that must be like. Even today, I have fallen short. Even today, I have sinned. 33 years of total purity, of total holiness, of absolute obedience to Father in every way. He kept the requirements of the law to its uttermost. And we cannot even begin to imagine what that must be like then. The force of the temptation upon him. How the devil wanted him again and again to fall short. The opportunities for the Lord Jesus to feel bitterness towards those who are hostile. To feel a desire to, to be vengeful in an unruly manner. To lash out. To belittle people because of his power and because of his knowledge. The temptation must have been overwhelming. To take advantage of people, to exploit people. People flocked to him. The opportunities were there again and again. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so in his life, he defeated the devil. By his life, he showed that the devil had no hold over him. And so we are told after temptation that the devil went away until an opportune time. A wonderful verse there. That even after 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord Jesus could not be crushed by the devil. And so he bruised the devil then, just by his life. But ultimately, it's on the cross. What happened on the cross? Well, he disarmed him of his powers. He took away his power over us. He turned him into a toothless tiger. See, what did he do on the cross? What did Jesus do? Well, he took our sin upon himself. He died our death. He took the penalty that we deserve. He bore that wrath upon himself. And so the devil demands that we die. The devil demands that we are condemned. And he rejoices in that because he's the God of, he's the, the God of this age and the, the father of murder, the father of lies. And he rejoices in seeing judgment and seeing death and destruction. And he revels in that. But on the cross, the Lord Jesus took that away. Disarmed him of his powers took away the hold of death. We are no longer under death. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer under condemnation. If you've trusted in Jesus, if Jesus is your saviour today, then you're no longer under condemnation. You are forgiven. You are a child of God. Nothing can be held against you anymore. The sins that you've done, the things that you have thought, the things that you have said, they've all been taken away as far as the east is from the west. Your sins were like scarlet, now they've become white, like snow, like wool. You are righteous in the eyes of God. You are justified. There is no condemnation. God declares about you that you are not guilty. You are righteous. Jesus on the cross 
cleansed us of all sins, purified us, made us white, so that God the Father can look upon us and we are holy and we are righteous in his sight. And as he sees us, he sees the blood of Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And this glorious news, that is wonderful, isn't it? That our deepest problem has been removed. Martin Luther says that the devil secures our condemnation as a prosecutor of humanity. Using the force of the law, he demands that we die. But he tries to condemn and he tries to drag us down and he tries to convict us and make us feel bad. But where do we go when Satan tempts us to despair? Upward we look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. So when the devil tries to accuse you, and when he tries to condemn you, and when he tries to make you feel hopeless and helpless, and that your future is bleak and dark, and there is no hope, it's gone. He has no hold over you anymore. He cannot have this power of death over you anymore. He has been disarmed of his power. The only weapon the devil has is to call through a destruction. But that destruction is now gone because Jesus took the sins upon himself and died in our place. And all of that then paved the way for what would follow. Jesus would be raised from the dead, conquering death itself. The Holy Spirit would be sent and he would give life, and he would give us hearts of flesh, so that we can conquer the devil ourselves in our own lives then, that we can overcome ungodliness and overcome temptation. And of course, it all paves the way for the second coming of Jesus, where the devil will finally be defeated, where he'll be thrown into the lake of fire, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be with Christ forever and ever in a place of beauty, of righteousness without sin, without the devil, without those who would blaspheme or oh, revile the Lord Jesus. And so the cross of Christ establishes this victory because it takes away the power of the devil and it paves the way for all that would follow, that would lead to the ultimate destruction of the devil. How does all of this help us today? Well, I want to summarize this with three words beginning with F. And the first one is freedom. Because you've been forgiven, because you have been cleansed of your sin, because the Lord Jesus has taken your sin away once and for all, you have peace with God, you're a child of God, and so the Holy Spirit can come and live and dwell in your soul. You are free today. The Holy Spirit lives within you. And so as Titus, as Paul tells Titus, we can say no to ungodliness. You are able to overcome the world. 1 John verse five, uh, chapter five. And so we have this power now by the Holy Spirit we're not under the power of the devil anymore. We're not under the power of sin. We are now controlled by the Spirit. 
We have the life of God in our souls. We are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin. And one day we'll be free from the presence of sin. Forgiveness. There are times when we feel hopeless. As a pastor, I have to deal with people, even God's people, who still feel helpless and hopeless. They're aware of the things that they've done in the past. And they feel hopeless. And they are haunted and tormented by their past behavior. How can I be a Christian if I've done those things? How can I be a Christian uh, if I've said those things? The destruction that I've caused, the problems that I've created. And those things, even years later, can torment us. And the devil wants to continue to accuse us of those things. He thinks that he still has the power of death over us. But when we feel that sense of hopelessness, when we feel that despair, where do we go? Well, I've mentioned it already. We go to the cross, knowing that he has taken our sins away, totally forgiven. And so when you feel condemned, when you feel accused, remember, there is forgiveness. You are pure. You are righteous. You are holy in the sight of God the Father. And then the final thing is future. When I was a child, uh, I was told to put little mottos uh, on my bedside cabinet and I, I would write them out. Uh, and one of them was this, when the devil reminds you of your past, what do we do? We remind him of his future. Uh, and I remember that as a child. When the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. On the cross, he was disarmed. His weapon, his accusations were taken away from us. And there is a time coming, of course, when he will truly be defeated once and for all, ultimately, when he will be cast away. And so we can know that blasphemy will come to an end, wars will come to an end, quarrels will come to an end, breakdowns will come to an end. The things that are so prevalent in this world, caused by the devil and the works of the flesh, all those things too will come to an end. And so when we look at the cross, we see that the very heart of the cross is that we are justified. That Christ died for our sins. That the wrath of God that was due to us was taken upon Jesus. And that he reconciles us to God the Father, that we can become children of God. We have peace with God. And so the cross deals with our greatest need of all, that we can know God as our Father in heaven. But even more, or as well as that, it deals with our enemies. The cross disarms the devil, takes away his power of death. He cannot condemn you. He cannot convict you. He cannot accuse you anymore. He cannot drag you down. And the cross paves the way for the victories that will follow. As God's people are filled with the Spirit, as the Spirit of God enables the kingdom to grow, and as the Lord Jesus will one day return, 
establish a new heaven and a new earth. And so there is wonderful news. Genesis 3 shows the darkness of this world. But right there in verse 15 of Genesis 3, the light of the gospel shines. And God promises life even then. In the wrath, he remembers mercy. And we see it all worked out in the whole of the Bible, culminating in the cross of Christ and ultimately in the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth.